Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforce technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforce technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Welcome back to another episode of Main Street Firefighting, a podcast by Fire Engineering. My name is Lex Shady, and with me is my partner, Chris Tobin. Before we get started, we'd again like to thank Fire Engineering for the opportunity and you all for tuning in. Tonight, we're joined by Nick Papa, a captain with the City of New Britain Fire Department. You're probably familiar with Nick from his book, Coordinating Ventilation, Supporting Extinguishment and Survivability. We had the opportunity to pick Nick's brain on running a fire academy, the importance of knowing your buildings, and of course, coordinated ventilation. Unfortunately, you will hear me cut out towards the tail end of the discussion due to being at the firehouse, but we hope you enjoy learning from Nick. So thanks again, Nick, for joining us for the podcast to talk a little bit about your experience as far as, uh, you know, legacy buildings, ventilation, your book. Uh, you guys had an academy recently, so we're going to, you know, dive into all that stuff with you. But before we get started, can you give us a little bit uh, info on your bio and maybe your experience in the fire service? Sure. So I'll just keep it short and sweet. Uh, my name is Nick Papa. I'm a captain in the city of New Britain, Connecticut Fire Department. Uh, New Britain is in a uh, small old New England mill city located in, in central Connecticut, just west of Hartford. So we're, it's not a big city. It's only about 13 square miles, but it's pretty densely populated. There's about 5,500 people per square miles. And unlike a lot of other communities where the bread and butter fires are, are typically in single family homes, uh, we deal with a lot of multiple family dwellings, uh, specifically what, you know, what we call here in, in New England, the, the three decker. Uh, we also have a lot of three and four story ordinary constructed uh, buildings, which if anybody's familiar with some of the New York City style of construction, it, it's very similar to an old law tenement uh, with that center stairway and the railroad flat apartments on either side of the stairs. Uh, so that's the operating environment that we work in. So we have six engines and two trucks, dedicated engines and ladder companies. Uh, and our shift strength, depending on the day, could it range anywhere from about 27 to 30 people. Uh, I just recently got promoted to captain. I spent the last almost eight years as uh, an engine company lieutenant, which I know is going to be uh, is always a, a funny point because you know, I, I teach a lot about ventilation, so that it always raises a few eyebrows when they hear that you know my most the bulk of my experience, especially as a company officer, has been uh, on the engine. But when you you really focus in what what it is that I'm talking about, it's the coordination aspect of ventilation, which when you dive into who is the the guaranteed benefactor of ventilation, 
it's the nozzle team and it's the engine company officer that's the one that is typically either requesting or confirming that ventilation is and then is on the receiving end of of the, their, those effects so in all honesty you know who to better talk about the coordination aspect and you know how to achieve the intended effect um, than the person that that's that's reaping those benefits so that's when that's really what where where my scope of, of my teaching is. You know, I've been uh, I've had the ability to to be out on the road, you know, teaching across the country now for you know probably about five five plus years, and it's been a great experience to just be able to you know take some of the the lessons that I've learned. Uh, unfortunately, some uh, a good portion of which the hard, which was the hard way, and you know, kind of my whole philosophy of teaching is to you know, prevent others from having to, to make those same mistakes and, you know, take the, you know, those, you know, mishaps on my part and be able to, you know, identify them to somebody else so they can avoid those, those, uh, those landmines and learn from them and, you know, have a better understanding and be better prepared going forward. And, you know, like I said, that if I can, if I can prevent one person from getting in a jam or allow one person to do their job that much better, where, you know, it, it allows for a better outcome, whether it's a, a life saved or, you know, increased property preservation, then that's, that that's all I'm looking for. That's really the, the, the goal of anybody who's, who's, who's out there, uh, you know, teaching or writing. That's the, the whole, the whole mission behind what we do is, is to, you know, just help out our, our community and, you know, end up with better, better impacts for our individual communities. Absolutely. That's how you know you're doing it for the right reasons too, right? Um, so you hit a little bit about your department and talked about like the manpower during the day. Can you give us a little bit about like the culture of the city? So you talked about your buildings, but what's your response to fires? You know, what's your general go-to tactic? I'm assuming you're an interior firefighting uh, department, but a little bit about what your first response is to your traditional bread and butter fires. So unfortunately, since I got, got hired, uh, the department went through a series of, of very deep cuts uh, to our staffing levels, the first couple contracts that, that I went through. So in I got hired in 20, uh, 2007. In 2010, we lost our dedicated heavy rescue company. And then in 2012, we lost uh, the fourth firefighter on our engine companies. Uh, thankfully, we were able to maintain the, the four firefighter staffing on the two ladder companies, which was which was critical because the way our two ladder companies function is they split two and two. We have an inside team and an outside team. So the mm -hmm. kind of the nomenclature that we use is the company officer and the tail border that sits behind them, which we refer to as the irons firefighter. Their standing order is that as soon as the brake pops, they go straight to the, uh, the seat of the fire, you know, confirm its location. If the, the engine's not already in position, they'll kind of let them know what the best means of access is. If they can confine it by closing a door and using a water can, they'll do so. And then their uh, primary function then is to conduct the primary search on the fire floor. The outside team, which consists of the, the ladder driver and then the tailboarder behind them, which we refer to as the, the OV or the outside vent firefighter, their job is to handle all the outside functions. So if it's a top floor or at a cock loft or knee wall fire, they're going to the roof and conducting roof operations more than likely to, you know, to cut for vertical ventilation. Uh, if it's a lower or intermediate floor, they're going to be setting up for horizontal operations. And they, usually that outside vent firefighter, while the ladder driver's uh, spotting and, and setting up the truck, usually what they'll do is they'll get eyes around the rear, 
take a look at conditions, make sure that there's no you know victims uh, showing in the rear, as well as if there's any access points specifically for you know private single family private dwellings. You know, they may uh, gain access to that that rear entry door just to take a quick look at conditions and. You know, because we, we all know that the, there's a high percentage of victims that are found within six feet of a door. So they're not only just kind of giving that, that life fire layout look as they're doing their check of the rear, but they'll also kind of throw ground ladders in the process of doing so, especially if they're going to be setting up for, for horizontal vent operations opposite the, the engine company. So that's that's how our, our ladder companies work. We When I first got on, we were doing three engines a ladder, the rescue, and then our deputy chief shift commander. Uh, since the loss of the rescue, they started being more proactive about calling the fourth engine immediately, which our fourth engine is is our dedicated RIT company. Um, mm-hmm. We're starting to move, uh, hopefully, officially going to be you know solidifying this in the next couple weeks, couple months of going to more of a four and two model where the second do ladder company will then uh, absorb the functions of the rescue, which was uh, search of the floor above for the inside team. And then the outside team was to supplement the, uh, the first two outside team of the, of the ladder company uh, to, especially if they, if they have, uh, they have the option to, to audible and conduct a uh, vent or search operation, if the situation mm-hmm. warrants it. So especially in those cases, having that additional uh, personnel to backfill the ventilation duties, if that is the case, or if there's any, um, any other issues that are taking place, whether it's, you know, window bars or any, any other sort of security measures that are slowing operations, it just provides that additional staffing being front loaded to, uh, to get the jobs done that much sooner. Because as we all know, you know, time is the immortal, uh, immortal enemy and we're constantly fighting against the clock. So having those resources front loaded in, in there at a moment's notice is really what ends up being the difference uh, in, in most fires being having a successful outcome or not. So that's, is that, uh, is that four and two model? So our, our, just to give you an idea of how our other critical tasks are broken down, uh, the one thing I'm, I'm very proud about that our department has, has done well before I, I got on the department is that first two engine company commits the fire attack. So they pull past, mm-hmm. typically stretch off the rear, and they, they, they put the, the priority on that crew is dedicated to getting water on the fire as soon as possible. Uh, and you know we again, pride ourselves on being uh, an aggressive interior firefighting department. And you know that's very much a, a source of pride for us. And mm-hmm. that second due engine company will then pick up the water supply for that first due. The third due engine company typically comes from the opposite direction as the second due, and it, it will st- stage at a secondary water supply uh, if it's needed. They'll you know lay in and establish that. Otherwise, they're kind of that that free range company, if you will. That if the first line is having trouble, they'll they'll supplement uh, them with, with with their personnel, or if another line needs to be stretched, they'll get that line in, into service. Same thing with the second due after they they establish their primary water supply. Uh, they're then freed up to then provide support to any of the hand lines that have already been stretched or to stretch their own. When then, as I said before, the fourth do is our, our RIT company. So that's really the the, the breakdown is our, of our first alarm structure and kind of how our tactics play out. Are those uh, truck companies is now, are you guys running like double houses where the truck and the engine are pulling at the same time or, or, is, or are they coming from two separate locations? 
independent. No, that's correct. So we, we have two double houses. So out of our okay. six firehouses, uh, the two central most uh, firehouses are double houses. So you have engine truck mm-hmm. and then the the headquarters firehouse, which is where I spent the bulk of my career, uh, was it also houses the, the deputy chief shift commander. And then as of our last contract a few years ago, we were able to get a deputy chief's aide, uh, which drives the, the deputy chief and also uh, handles accountability and, and incident safety gotcha. on the fire ground. Well, cool. So, yeah, I mean, that that's really the give and take of the unfortunately you lost your your fourth individual on, on the engine. But um, you still roll up with seven. Uh, so every fire rolls up with a minimum of seven to where um, places like St. Louis, which took massive cuts back in the 80s, we eliminated, you know, over a dozen uh, ladder companies and put the majority of our houses are single houses now. So unfortunately, we, we have more per truck. We have four on every truck at least, but it's only one. The first engine is by itself um, for, for some amount of time unless you're at one of the, the few double houses in the city, which is only, there's only you know, a hand two um, for the most part with the truck company. So, um, so yeah, you, while you guys get, what would that, that'd be four, that'd be what, you guys get seven immediately. We get, we get eight later, you know, after the fact, you see what I'm saying? So I think that allows you guys to do a little bit more proactive truck work, um, which, which sounds awesome. You know, I mean, obviously the, the, it's, it's the, the necessity from your built environment that you guys have to work in. Um, and I think that's where the proactive truck company kind of mentality starts is when, when you have the engine, the truck arriving on scene right away. Um, you, I mean, the truck company is going to obviously do truck work and nothing else, right? Because you know, uh, compared to a place like St. Louis, which ran Quince for, for many decades, you have this weird blend of um, different mentalities and philosophies. So uh, we could be kind of, Unfortunately, or behind the ball sometimes in truck work, just because that's what we've we've always been used to um, responding on a deficit in some ways. But um, like you said, though, for, first company on scene is always going to be fire tech no matter what. It just might take a second for that that additional uh, truck to arrive and then initiate the truck work, which you guys would already have going on in that whatever that reflex time is, because you guys are always responding with a double house. Um, my, my one question would be is what happens when, say, the engine is out and, and a truck pulls up first? What do you guys do for that? So our, our truck companies are still going to get in there and initiate that, that primary search and, and try to confine the fire if, if possible. Uh, we've Our ladder company culture is, it's, I can only speak for the, the last 15 years, but it has always been one that it ha- has place the highest priority on getting those those searches underway as soon as possible you know being a heavy multiple dwelling occupancy community the the chance for there being a life hazard in these buildings is extremely high you know especially given um the impoverished nature of our community and even more so in this this post-pandemic society where you know the the rate of unemployment's up and also the amount of people working from home is up. So you look at the volume of, of, there to, of opportunity there is for, for entrapment, you know, we place the highest priority on, on getting those searches underway. So as long as there's, there's searchable space, those crews are gonna be getting in there. And like I said, they, uh, if they can get that, that fire confined to the room or area of origin through water can use and door, and door control, it, it's just going to make their search that, that much more tenable mm-hmm. and allow them mm-hmm. 
to occupy those those spaces to get as much of that primary search done as possible you know, without the uh, without the protection of the hand line. Clarification for the Midwest people, uh, Nick, your trucks are trucks, correct? No water on them. Correct. They're dry trucks. The only water that they carry is the two and a half gallons in the, the water extinguisher. Cool. Um, and then that's that's something that kind of is um, phases out, you know, west of Indiana, then picks back up again when you get out west of, you know, Colorado. Just it's just the Midwest is he- heavily quint. Um, concept, which is, you know, it, it's fine, but it's just a geographical thing here. Um, a lot of places where, where all, all of Missouri, except maybe one or two departments, um, they do not run dry trucks. Everything's some sort of quint. So, but, you know, that's, that's just, you know, a, a different way of doing things. Um, so my, my, my question is, is I would like to know more about, like we just talked about, like the, the engineless response, right? Because that's something that I would love to see either an article on or even a class you know, like, what, what do you do when you have a vent limited fire and it's, you know, you're a truck to say there's no engine coming for another five minutes. Five minutes is a long time for just you on scene, right? A lot can happen in that five minute time period. So how do you go about triaging what you can open and then and then have, you know, some sort of beneficial return on without having a diminishing return? I mean, that that's a pretty, that's a pretty tight spot to be in, right? Imagine if you have a report of people trapped. You're on a truck. You have no water. You have, you know, a little two-gallon water can. Now, now, what's your? I mean, how do you figure out? Should I, you know, what openings are gonna maybe not? How do you? You know, what I'm saying like, there's a lot. You're talking about. You really got to be on your game because everything you do is gonna have a short-term benefit and maybe a long-term negative, you know, effect or maybe a, a, a could could not have any of that. Could just all be bad if you pick the wrong thing to open up at the wrong time, depending on what you have and just the fact that, like you said, you have no water. Um, I think that's something that isn't talked about enough in the fire service. You know, what happens when we show up on scene and it's just a truck company, it's just a heavy rescue company, like in my case, it doesn't happen often, but there's definitely, it, it's, it's definitely um, a possibility. So once or twice a year, it happens. And that is where your platform and what your focus is on building instruction is so important because the one thing I stressed to to our recruits in the academy was fire dynamics and building construction are the foundation upon which all strategy and tactics are framed. So you have to have that solid basis in, in especially the, the, the local building stock. It's what type of construction are we fighting fire in? How is that uh, that building going to behave under fire conditions? Where uh, How are they laid out? What's the comp- uh, the degree of compartmentation? Where are the void spaces? Uh, you know, how is fire going to travel throughout them? And then that pa- pairs, you know, dovetails directly with the fire dynamics. Is you know, based on all uh, uh, based on that environment, how is that fire going to develop and spread within it? And then how you know how can we target certain areas? How can we maneuver through uh, you know th- through the thoroughfares? Whether it's the you know the hallways, the stairways, in order to access those uh, those priority areas, especially when we're talking about that prior uh, that primary search. Right. So having right. that having that basis is going to allow you to to implement the the, the tactics accordingly, given the, the circumstances that you're being faced with, and that's why I personally feel that you know your more senior folks the what you know that have the the fire duty and also the 
the comprehension. It's that's not only the the physical skill sets; it's the mental skill sets to to pair with them that should be on your ladder and, and heavy rescue companies because they're the ones that are that are potentially going to be put in these situations where they have to uh, make these decisions where we have to get that primary search done. That's our number one priority is life safety. We have to get these done, but now you have to be able to know how far to extend, how far you can extend yourself out, what safeguards that you can put or precautions that you can take in order to, you know, be able to search that uh, more spaces to be able to um, you know, keep those fire conditions at bay. You kind of have to be able to leverage the the openings in the building and you know how you access the fire. Even something as simple as the means that you access the building could alter the fire's uh, the fire's behavior. So having knowing how all of those things work together and being able to kind of anticipate or predict that action reaction in my classes, I always talk about that Newton's third law of motion that every every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And the very best firefighters and fire officers are the ones that are able to think those multiple moves ahead that know what the reaction is going to be when they execute certain actions and, and know how to, um, to carry themselves accordingly in order to, ha- uh, to, in order to be able to uh, accomplish those objectives uh, in the, the most effective and efficient manner possible. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I, would, I would take a guess that most people haven't had the unpleasant experience of being on scene with, without water for any sort of am- amount of length of time. Um, probably something where, where they, they got on scene and maybe the engine's pulling up. or But for the most part, um, there's always a hose line in or around what, what we're doing, whether it's a search or, or any sort of truck work. But what, what I tell people, because like I said, it does happen even with, with us once or twice a year, I say the one thing we can do is at least compartmentalize as best as we can. Like that's the one thing we can do. It's like you were saying. It's, it's like a. It's almost like a paradox, right? Truck work, or in, in essence, searching and access. Everything we do, um, like I said, is that cause and effect. We're going to make something worse, unfortunately, but at the expense of maybe some benefit or vice versa. But you don't know what the time is going to be on one or the others. So you're trying to. There's just so much that you have to consider in a small amount of time, and. Uh, I mean, some a lot of that stuff may not even be under under your control. But the one thing we can do, I always try to tell you know my, myself, if, if I'm in that situation, especially if there's someone trapped, um, a report of anyways, is at least try to compartmentalize whatever we can as fast as we can, because that's gonna at least give us some sort of time, maybe, or at least slow down the negative as, aspects of of truck work, which will obviously be allowing air to get in. You know, that's just what it would be. So. But we have to get in and air is going to follow, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. So it's a give and a take. Okay. So. And, and that's where understanding building construction and the, the, the focus of, of this platform is on legacy era buildings. The benefit to legacy construction is the degree of compartmentation. Sure. So because we have that luxury, we need to leverage it to, to our advantage. So that's where when, if we're coming in at, uh, ahead of the hand line, you know, controlling in that 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 point of intake by shutting the door behind you. I personally, that's, it's my personal preference, like using the spring clamps for propping doors open or controlling them in the closed position. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just find them easy to use and they're, they're reliable. So if, if you're going in ahead of the hand line, obviously the, oh, our 
we want to be mindful to to restrict the intake of fresh air to the fire, especially with kind of the vent limited nature that, uh, of the fires that we're dealing with today. That if we provide them with air, it's going to allow them to to grow and spread that much faster because that is the limiting factor, thus the name. So we and in those moments before that line is is pushing through the door, we want to restrict that that source of intake. So that that is the starting point there of my access point. I need to restrict that intake now. My next point of compartment uh, using the compartmentation is w- locating the seat of the fire and is it within a single box or a single area? Mm-hmm. If it's if it's a, a room and contents fire, and we can get that uh, the door closed to that fire room, such as a, a bedroom, then that's great. Now we've put the genie back in the bottle. And now we've severely restricted its growth and spread, which now makes my environment that much safer, that much more tenable, and allows me to to more freely conduct that primary search under those conditions. Because now, again, it's it's restricted to to an area, and we've we've got that door shut. And now, as we move throughout the other compartmental uh, compartmented spaces especially if I haven't been able to to restrict it to the area of origin. Now, this is where this comes even more so into play, is as I maneuver through those spaces, we talk all the time about isolation and door control when it comes to vent enter search, mm-hmm. but it's not just a vent enter search deal. We can leverage isolation and door control just as well through conventional search. So if you get into and get into a space and you shut the door, now you've isolated the, the, the space that you're in. So as you then search away, you reach an outside wall and you feel up and, and locate a window, you can take that window without fear of negatively impacting the fire conditions on the other side because we've proactively closed the door, isolated our position, and now there, the, the seal of the door is preventing that pathway from from being in place so now once that window gets vented that is how we get that that lift and how we improve tenability within that remote space through that local ventilation but again that that linchpin there and i can't stress this enough because for any of us that have been in the service for for at least a decade or or so i'm sure especially from senior members senior instructors that you had during drill school you inevitably heard the term vent as you go Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this was a pre SCBA tactic uh, that was born out of necessity. So these firefighters mm-hmm. that didn't have the luxury of respiratory protection had to pop windows as they went along in order to get that lift and relief to and allow them to continue moving on. The big difference was their environment was a lot. Uh, a lot more forgiving and because they weren't dealing with these severely vent limited fuel rich uh, fire conditions the fires were responding a lot slower and it wasn't they, their window of opportunity was a, a lot wider so they were kind of able to, to f- more freely do that without f- that fear of that low pressure point being created and drawing the fire on top of them in any sort of rapid fashion so for us now i always that it, it's still a valid tactic and it's one that we should be uh, implementing if we want to increase tenability of the, those remote spaces because that's one thing that we really need to, to emphasize is that there's a huge difference between 
whether you use the the original term of uh, vent for fire, vent for life, or the vent for extinguishment or vent for search, it's the, the principle still the same. They have different objectives and those vent points are in different places, creating different pathways. So venting the fire room is going to do little, if any, to improve conditions in remote spaces Sure. Because unless there's intake, uh, local intake pathways already established. But we know that we most of us don't live in, in temperate climates where we're keeping windows open uh, most of the time. Uh, and a lot of mm-hmm. places throughout the country, we're keeping the windows shut and either the heat's on or the air conditioning's on. And that's just the nature of, of the environment that we're working in. So without those local vent points, without pulling a draft throughout those spaces, it doesn't matter how much you open up above the fire or how many windows you open up in the fire room. If there's no intake point within the space, there's gonna be no draft pulled. And that way there's gonna be no enhancement to the the conditions. So by venting as you go, ensuring that if water's not on the fire yet, that we've isolated our position through door control, or if there's water on the fire, that's when we can you know freely vent as we go and we want to create as many of those uh, local ventilation points as possible to you know facilitate the kind of that global ventilation of the rest of the floor is that that's the priority is that not only is it going to give us the lift to enhance the visibility to allow us to search faster um, but it's going to provide you know great more survivable conditions for any occupants that may be trapped within those locations and then if we need to to have an uh, alternative means of of egress that that opportunity is is there especially for the vast majority of the fire service that does their their work in single family homes if it's a a single story like a ranch style home you close the door behind you you searched you vented as you go uh, as you went along you locate a victim if it's still uncontrolled out in the hallway what's going to be better for that that victim to open up that door, unisolate that position, now subject them to the uncontrolled conditions out into the hallway, or if I'm able to, based off of the the conditions within the room, the size of the victim, and and the ability of myself and the partner that I'm searching with to get that victim out into, immediately out into fresh air, um, we, we can't get kind of pigeonholed into the mindset of just because I entered through the door doesn't mean that that's the way that I have to go. Uh, we should be basing our, our decisions off of what's going to enhance victim survivability. That really needs to be the primary driver behind what we do and minimizing the exposure to the victim as much as, as we can. Um, because sometimes it's not the, the degree, uh, the degree of exposure it actually trumps the um, the time of exposure uh, in, in some right. cases. Sure. So that's why we're in that in the, the most recent UL st- uh, study that just came out, the search and size up uh, elevation was like the biggest enemy to victim survivability, and the difference between the one foot and even the three foot mark was substantial, and that could even be the difference of life and death. So making sure that we you know isolate our position as much as we can. Uh, that we create these these local ventilation pathways within those isolated spaces or after we, we have water on the fire and then keeping those victims as low as possible in that environment and getting them to those intake pathways as soon as we can is what's going to massively increase their chances of survival. So all this stuff you're talking about, Nick, like you talked about earlier, 
requires um, experience and then knowledge, right? And we all know the kid that just got out of the academy has zero experience, and we're also just simply not going as many fires anymore. What do you guys do as a department to help them get to the point to be able to make those decisions in those situations? So again, the the luxury of running our own academy was in, invaluable. I mean, I can't speak enough for about that process. There's the dividends that you get from being able to train your recruits with your people in your working environment using your equipment and your strategy and tactics sets them off uh, on the, the right foot and really catapults their uh, their transition into the uh, the fire service, um, and we all know that the the transition from the the drill ground to the fire ground is is a big one. Uh, you know, you can you can prepare them as much as you want, but they're the drill ground pales in comparison to the the, the rigors of the fire ground, and with you know the the tempo, the uncertainty, uh, the the stressful environment. So. But being able to to start them off on that right foot is is huge because you know you go back to kind of the the laws of learning and and the law of primacy. What we learn first is often the most powerful. So by indoctrinating them with how we do things in the environment that that we specifically work in prevents us from having to kind of retrain or rewire their brains based off of the generic education that they get in either a state or regional academy. Uh, so that has done wonders for us. We, we've been noticing a, a much more accelerated uh, pace of, of acclimation with the, these recruits that just graduated um, shortly after the first of the year. Uh, the, fortunately for them, they've had the opportunity to, to gain some, some pretty solid experience over the last six months uh, the volume of fire that some of them have caught has, has been has been noteworthy and you know they, they've the reports are coming back have been very positive so it's again starting out with with how you're training your, your folks in the beginning and making sure that you continue to build upon that uh, by reinforcing all of those building construction those fire dynamics lessons as you're practicing and, and building upon the ta- uh, the actual tactics and skill sets that you're going to be employing on, on the fire ground, because as I alluded to earlier, we can't just hyper focus on the how to. We need to be making sure that the when, where, and most importantly, the why are all supporting each other, because it's being able to perform a task is one thing, but then being able to you know, consistently and accurately implement them in the moment to have the best possible outcome is what separates, you know, the the run of the mill firefighter from from the, the truly great one. So that uh, that I would say is is really how we we go about kind of building our people up and, and building upon uh, upon those to get them ready to make those. And then also in the integration process. So when our firefighters graduate or recruits graduate and they you know become probationary firefighters uh they ride as as a fourth for the first couple of months uh just to get them acclimated so we, we kind of refer to it as a as a field training officer program where you know they ride as an they don't count towards the roster they ride as an extra so that way they have the luxury of another firefighter in the back seat with them to kind of 
get them up to speed in a route, uh, let them know what they need to, to, to do in preparation and, and what to expect and what the, they're, they're more than likely going to be doing once that break pops. And then further from that is even once they get cleared to, to count towards the roster, uh, they're not allowed to work on ladder companies uh, for another couple of months uh, just to make sure they at least have um, a decent basis of that street experience before we throw them into the mix of, of detailing them to uh, to a ladder company. And even then, if, if they get detailed to the ladder company, they're 100% going to be paired up with the company officer on the inside team. So we're putting them with, and our ladder company officers are some of our more, if not our, the, the senior officers on the job. So you're putting that, uh, that probationary firefighter with a, a senior company officer that has a substantial amount of uh, fire ground experience that can really you know, look after them and make sure that they're, uh, they're taken care of. Really cool. Uh, proactive program. Um, Nick, that's something similar that, that we do. Um, when I went through our recruit class, you know, we, we did the, you know, the normal IFSTA 10 week fire one and two program. But then, um, as soon as uh, we got to our additional six weeks of SOGs and whatnot, they loaded us on a bus. We drove all around our city with, with a battalion chief who had a pedigree in the, in the trades. And, um, we, we studied buildings, you know, for, for that day or, or two. And then, so, I mean, everyone got, got, like you said, we have, we got all of our knowledge and our endemic construction, the buildings that we're going to be going to. And then they got to compare that with the, just the generic that they learned in the book, which essentially just confuses everyone. And then we got to bring them down to, down to perspective with our stuff on the street. And then from there, we uh, moved it right into almost immediately into overhaul. And that's, that's about a week long of us going into vacant buildings and, and learning how, first of all, not to use tools and then how to really hone tool technique and discipline and, you know, what holds everything together and how you, how you take it apart during a fire and where the fire goes. And that's when we start getting into concealed spaces and everything from there on. But um, it's awesome to see the progression of just skill um, acquisition in that brief one-week period. I mean, the first day, everyone's breaking pike poles. Everyone's breaking axe handles. And then... By, by the end of the week, I mean, they're, they're clearing a room out like a professional demo, um, you know, company. And uh, it's incredible to see people who have never picked up a tool to really kind of, you know, pick up on the skills that, that are needed. Also, it's really good. Um, it's, re it's really good to, I guess, uh, an example or, or you see people that come in the fire academy that are from the trades. Maybe they, they you know, they help frame up buildings or they did roofing or something. Um, they, they actually, there's a lot that they don't realize they uh they don't know until they put it in, into a fire fighting perspective just because you know how to build just because you know how to build buildings or, or you helped construct buildings doesn't necessarily know you understand the fire inside of one um and how that how that that interface um cooperates with the building instruction and the fire behavior and then how fire is moving so i think people kind of give too much credit to that um because i see people still to this day who who get off work and then go do a side job in some sort of construction trade. And they are still trumped on some basic building instruction stuff from the fire service standpoint. With your, uh, your academy that you guys just did, did you guys have the ability to do anything like that with your recruits? Like take them out and see your buildings, walk through them or anything like that? So that was going to be where I was going to go next. Part of where we incorporated our building stock into the, the curriculum was during our, our PT sessions. So uh, two days a week were run days for us. And when we were doing our building construction, building construction module, we would do our, uh, all of our runs were in the city streets. 
and uh, specifically on the week that we covered building construction, we took an extra long run day and ran through all the different neighborhoods because uh, there's one neighborhood in particular that's that's near where the, the academy grounds are that has a, a really wide, the, the whole spectrum of building construction. You know, there's, it's predominantly multiple dwellings, but you, you do have the, the single families that are interlaced in there. So it really gives you that, that, that full coverage to be able to go through and, and talk about the single family versus multifamily, the balloon frame versus ordinary construction. And, you know, we have very little, very, very little new construction uh, in the city just because of it, you know how old the city is and how densely packed it is. There's just not a lot of open land. There's not a lot of new construction that has, has taken place. But you know, then you can show them the differences of you know the the platform frame construction and or the buildings that were previously subjected to fire that were salvaged and then you know almost like that hybrid style of construction where the guts of it are mainly that that ordinary construction but it may have a truss roof to it because when they rebuilt it they then just slapped a um a low pitch tr uh, truss peaked roof on top of it so being able to to actually take them through our city streets get them to learn the neighborhoods the building stock and then be able to to take these concepts and these terms and actually show them you know, even when you're dealing with the ordinary construction, getting to show them the different orientations of, of the brick with the stret, uh, stretcher and header courses versus the soldier courses and what an arch and a lintel looks like and talking about how the, the loads are, uh, how they're used to distribute the loads. And when you actually have something visual to look at and it's something that's that's they can see the practicality of it because they're out in their community that they're going to work in has so much value and they're able to see uh the, the the practicality of what they're learning because oftentimes you know that what disrupts the learning or, or gets in the way of, of learning is we don't we may not recognize the value of it in the moment especially in the classroom setting but when you're actually out there in the environment in which you're going to be working in and you're seeing what the, is being talked about in the lesson it, it's so much more impactful and one of the things we got to do is a, a building that uh that we had caught a fire in you know within the last like year or two but prior to the academy taking place is is still under construction it's been a, a stop and go process and the building was uh was was opened up and we got to go access that building and there it was in various states of of renovation so they got to see you know the open stud uh, the open stud channels they got to see the the you know the wet wall the plumbing chases they got to see the the what plaster and lath actually is and how it's constructed and uh, how these these railroad flats are are laid out uh so that was such a great uh great value at the one thing i wish we were able to do is have, have gotten a either an acquired structure that was set for demo or, or renovation where we were able to actually get in there and, and pull some ceilings and because there's there's such a difference in pulling plaster and lath especially when you're dealing with that uh, metal wire mesh the the wire lath mm -hmm. that's a, a whole other a whole other animal and it, it's one thing to know how to use the tools and you know pulling sheetrock is is pretty self-explanatory but there's definitely a, a, a it's more technique when you get into plaster and laugh and it was it was right. great I, I got i got to catch a fire just the 
about uh, two weeks ago and got to work alongside one of the, the recruits that, that we train in the academy. And that was his first time uh, pulling plaster and laugh. Um, so he was you know, using the tool appropriately, but even just being able to, to teach that, you know, once you make the purchase point and you see which way the laugh is uh, or see or feel which way the laugh is running, then you just you know, cl- run that bay and, cl- and clear it out. You know, that's the, the natural tendency without understanding that specific technique is to want to just keep punching the tool up through the ceiling. <laughs> but you know, un- understanding how lath works and how it's constructed, you know, once you have the purchase point, that's all you need. And now you just run run the bay and just keep clearing it out and pulling that the, that lath down, which is going to pull the plaster down. So it, it's it's amazing when you actually get to to be in the environment and show somebody the specifics based on the nuances of the building construction. Well, and I, like you said earlier, you know, what you learn first is the most powerful. I think we do our recruits a disservice sometimes in academies that don't do things like what you two were just talking about. When we have an instructor come in and, you know, their attitude towards building construction is, oh, this is boring, this sucks, like, well, we got to get through it, guys. Well, why do we expect them later on to even remotely be interested in it when we've told them from the beginning that it sucks and what we have to know it. You know what I mean? So what you guys have done, I think, is really important in, in starting from the very beginning, telling them why it's so important and then showing them in person. I think I think that's awesome. Yeah, the big thing with what you're doing also, what people um, fail to talk about is, man, like never wasting an EMS run. You know, like the, that's, the, that's the, the runs that you're out in the community the most – that's that's probably the most time spent on the street is doing EMS for the for probably everyone in the fire service. I mean, those are just awesome opportunities. You know, after you're done clearing the EMS run, look to the building right or left of the building you're in, and, and just like you said, point out the header rows, point out the lintels, ask the new kid, you know, what's that still being running across over that window mean? You know, like that kind of stuff. Hey, look, what kind of construction is this? Like, I mean, that that's essentially none of us have any time to do pre plans anymore, apparently, but we're all doing them just informally if we choose to you know you know i'm you know kind of understand what i'm saying so i couldn't agree with you more and that was something that especially as an engine officer i had the opportunity to do a lot and we would put put a a great deal of emphasis on that because for me uh you know i didn't have the luxury of working uh, in the construction trade beforehand so i was i always put a heavy emphasis on on learning the, the building stock and you know, one thing that that always that, that stuck with me is, uh, you know, Tim Klett would always say the the difference between uh, a good firefighter and a great firefighter is understanding layouts. And I couldn't agree with him more because especially now more than ever, where we're dealing with these vent limited fires where they're producing so much more smoke and pretty much every fire that we're going into is either limited or, or no visibility in those those early moments. So we've taken away our, our greatest asset in terms of uh, orientation for from our senses, which is our, our sense of vision. So when without that, you know, we are relying off of that kind of tactile perception of, of you know, feeling our way through and kind of gauging our which our, our sense of direction and movement and, you know, how in distance. But the way to successfully do that is by understanding how buildings are laid out and what the, the floor plans are of our, our typical uh, occupancies. Sure. So being, being in an older community where we don't, we, have, we don't have a lot of new construction, we have the, the opportunity where if you know how a three-decker is laid out, if you know how a railroad flat is laid out, it doesn't matter if you can't see, if you 
slow yourself down enough to, to properly size up that building from the exterior. You hit on those, those key points of, all right, where, where are the stairs running? Cause like take a three decker, for example. And for those that don't know, it's a three or three and a half story balloon frame, one apartment per floor with a basement and an and attic space up uh, attic uh, or cock loft space up above. And the way that they're laid out is you've got two front doors. So for, or, you know, two door, doors from the front, and typically the door that favors more towards one of the sides is going to be where the stairs are. And then you can further verify that by looking on that side and either you're going to have an intermediate window or you're going to have an absence of windows in that, that corner, mm -hmm. uh, which is going to let you know that's where the stairs are at. And based off of that, I know that in a typical three decker layout that there's two bedrooms off of a, a T-shaped hallway separated by a, a bathroom in the middle that's on the same side of the building as the stairs. And then when I come in through uh, the front uh, the front stairs, that typically dumps me into the living room. Now, if there's a stairway landing and it's a larger three-decker, I know that there's probably going to be a front bedroom as well. And usually that'll be noted by not only the presence of a landing, but a lot of times there's a second door that leads directly into that front bedroom off the landing. Um, if there's no landing, then I know that there's no front bedroom and that's just going to lead right into the living room, which is in that front corner. The living room leads to the kitchen. The kitchen connects to the tea hallway and usually the kitchen uh, exits out to a rear porch. So even if I, I've never been in this building before and it's lights out and I can't see, if I can maintain the wherewithal and the composure and I conduct a, a good size up on arrival, I'm able to, to identify these key building features the the kind of the the teaching point i make is I, I tell people that your goal is to create a mental blueprint so when you cross that threshold and it's lights out if you have that floor plan kind of uh, in your mind and you know kind of the spans and angles that you're going to have to that you're going to have to navigate that's how you can maintain your orientations so that way if i'm trying to target those back bedrooms I know instinctively that when I cross the threshold, it's going to be a, a 10 to 15 foot diagonal towards the back of the building to traverse the living room. Then I'm going to hit the, the, uh, the threshold of the kitchen. And now I got to angle back in the, in the, uh, in the opposite direction and I'll hit the T hallway. And that's where I have access to those two bedrooms in the rear. So that's, and I, I use the same methodology when I teach, you know, because being an engine, being an engine officer for um, uh, probably half my career, when I would teach fire attack, that would, would be how I would teach moving the hand line and specifically, all right, when do we open up? Where's what's the difference between our, our travel lane versus our attack lane versus where the seat of the fire is? And when you break the building up into those kind of segments based off of the layouts, that's how you can conceptualize, you know, these kind of uh, benchmarks or uh, you know, the, you know, checkpoints as you maneuver through the building and, and also, you know, more importantly, maintaining your, your orientation and your, you know, keeping that situational awareness throughout the, the incident. Yeah, that's, that's huge, man. Um, and, uh, I mean, everything you said is just totally spot on and, and knowing your, your construction on that sort of visceral level is, is paramount, definitely pays dividends. Um, I've tried to do the same thing, um, 
we cover such a wide swath of the city being being on the company that, I, that I'm on. Um, but still, every neighborhood has an architectural signature, right? Some sort of fingerprint that you can it, that you can kind of start um, categorizing in your head when we arrive on scene. Plus, obviously, we're, I'm looking up a satellite um, photo of the fire building when we're on, you know, when we're in a route. So I'm, I'm I'm looking at some stuff before we get there to kind of see. And I've always tried to do what you're talking about, which is to basically orientate myself with the walls. And then wayfind with the furniture. And usually those two things, um, one might not make sense, but the other one might. And those two things combined will give me a, a pretty good um, a pretty good stab at it to what, what room I'm in, right? If I think I'm in a, a kitchen, I should be seeing cabinets, right? Like if this hallway leads to where I'm thinking it's going to be the, you know, a dining room, I should be seeing a bunch of little chair legs in the table, you know. But sometimes that, that doesn't add up. I might be looking at like a lawnmower and I'm like, well, hold on. Well, why, why is this here? You know, this is, this is not making sense now. Or maybe that this wall went, um, somewhere I didn't expect it to. Now I'm in this weird, like back addition storage porch thing, you know, like, so, um, so like, that's what I've always kind of tried to do. I mean, like I said, furniture moves, people put weird things in their house. Like I said, we've all seen the lawnmowers in the kitchens, the motorcycles in the living room, right? Like weird stuff like that. Um, people put bedrooms everywhere, especially when you're in a shotgun style construction um, type type city, which, which you guys have as well, um, to where you don't really have hallways. You just have one room stacked subsequently front to back. Um, you knows where that bedroom is going to be. That could be in the back, could be in the middle. So you could be going past the bedroom to get to a kitchen, all sorts of weird stuff. But uh, just knowing that, and as long as you're expecting it, um, is is huge. Now, the weird thing is when it doesn't add up, right? Like the building is chopped up like you alluded to earlier, where they, they do a full remodel. Maybe they cut a building in half with a partition, a newly added lightweight partition wall running parallel to the street that would normally never be there. Now it's there. Now you have this weird, you know, two family flat, now a four family fat flat with two two in the front and two in the back, sort of weird stuff going on, right? Where walls are where they shouldn't be. Um, that's when we start running into trouble. But if you understand the baseline characteristic of your buildings, your reflex time, when you run into weird stuff that doesn't match the pattern, your mental model, you can definitely um, adapt to that on a much more quicker. Um, a much more quicker scale than someone who would just be essentially probably lost and out of air and being close to, to being in a, in a jam. Um, so everything you said is huge and all this stuff is front loaded. Like we talked about before on the non-emergency calls, right? The, the EMS runs, the on the quiet runs, maybe the, the fire alarm sounding, the stuff that we can kind of get out under, not under duress and kind of take a look at our environment and take some things back with us. So when it is on fire, which actually happens a lot, surprisingly like the it just happened to me on tuesday there was a standpipe on the side of this building i was working for someone called an ems run i just i don't do standpipe work or i'm not on an engine company but there was something on the standpipe that caught my attention it was a pressure that's not our normal pressure and i asked a question I'm like why what does that pressure mean on that standpipe i'm not that's not no you know is that what they tested to is that what we need to pump is that what it is that what it takes to overcome the fire pumps and I, I, I'm telling you, 24 hours later, they got a bunch of rooftop air conditioners on fire in the same building, and they're pumping that system. So, like that—that's huge, right? Like I'm, that's that's the the dividends and the payoffs are sometimes in the same shift or within 24 hours later. But if you don't get out and do what you're talking about and, and study your environment, um, 
every day is just going to be a brand new uh, surprise. And we, we want to try to lessen the surprises, you know, in our line of work. Yeah, for sure. It's just a, be, being opportunistic and, and seizing those uh, those moments to to make everything a, a learning opportunity. And you know, the, the, some of the best drills aren't the, the formal planned out, you know, hour, two hour long drills. Usually the, the most impactful lessons are the ones where they're those spur of the moment opportunistic drills where, as you said, you, using the EMS runs or the, the fire alarms uh, or the service calls to just get, get out there and, and take a look at what's going on in, inside your district. And it gives you such a perfect opportunity to get inside these buildings, some of which that you may not have the opportunity to see otherwise. And it just if you have that mindset going in, and you don't look at it as uh, it's just another whatever run and you look at it from that mindset, it, it's going to put you in a, a completely different perspective. And also you're creating that, that habit and that routine of viewing the buildings in that way all the time, because being the mission oriented, you know, type A personalities that a lot of us are, you know, we tend to get that that front sight focus. And if we just kind of program ourselves and this is something that I'm constantly working on to just slowing down, getting more of that broad view of, of your surroundings and taking in some more of those those subtle cues, especially when it comes to the building construction and and kind of anticipating the layout in order to maintain my orientation, be able to navigate that uh, that much better throughout the building when you inevitably cross the threshold and lose your 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 sense of sight. Uh, I can't speak on that enough. It's operational tempo is so important because you know our awareness and our orientation is going to be directly related to how fast we're moving uh, and. You know, because again, that, that that higher, the more elevated our tempo becomes, and the faster we're moving, the less we're going to be picking up on our periphery, and kind of the more we're going to be looking forward. So it's a lot easier to to overlook or to miss these things, or to to over uh, overcommit and to you know be deeper than you expected at, at times. So just making sure that we're we're at that we're at a, a pace enough where we're still able to, to maintain our bearings. And I love the fact that you use the term uh, wayfinding because especially when you don't have the luxury of, of the hand line, which is, you know, basically your, your big point of orientation or the, uh, the umbilical cords as the, the truck or rescue guys like to tease the engine guys about, yeah, right. uh, you, you don't have that, that tie to your egress path. So in, in that case, more than ever, that's where you really need to maintain your bearings. And that pace of that pace of movement is going to dictate a lot of, you know, how how well oriented you are. And I haven't had the opportunity to dive into it yet, but um, I just got turned on to uh, one of the nozzle forward instructors, uh, Jordan Lagan, uh, had published a um, master's thesis paper through Washington State University on uh, building layouts and, and wayfinding and, you know, using, uh, understanding those uh, those floor plans in order to enhance orientation. Yes. And it's actually that, that term wayfinding is in the title. I just haven't had the chance to dive into it yet, but it's a, uh, those I've talked to have said it's uh, spoken very highly about it. Yeah, um, 
last I took Aaron's class, he hadn't finished it yet, but I was I'm super excited that he's done with it. And uh, yeah, that's going to be. I think you're going to start seeing more of that. Um, it's definitely worthy of its own um, its own manuscript of some sort, right? Uh, I mean, I picked it up because the first assignment I had just coincidentally was um, located near a, uh, a school for the blind, and um, we would we would run calls, and I watch how they. Well, I watch how they wayfinded, and and it was just caught my curiosity. I'm like, well, these people need to learn how to how to like orientate themselves in all sorts of new environments constantly. Like, what happens when they go into a building they've never been in? How do they f- figure things out? And I started watching kind of how they, and I did some of my own research about how essentially blind people wayfind in in the world, and I took a little bit f- from that, and then I kind of took a little bit from the fire service, and I've kind of come up. It, with the same concepts as, as you have spoken about, and I'm sure um, the individual that's writing that with, with Aaron's group is, is probably gonna gonna educate all of us on, and it's gonna be an awesome thing to to learn about because until now, like it's just kind of a bunch of us trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work, you know, on the street. We don't really have anything formal. A sort of, is sort of techniques go for wayfinding in a in a zero vis environment, right? I mean other than just feeling around and taking an educated guess of what you think you might have a hand on, you know? So, yeah. um, well, that's all super cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, about roofs. Um, I know, uh, you said you, obviously you've been on a, you know, a truck company and stuff, you've done that kind of stuff. So the big thing I'm going to talk to you about roofs is, is when we're talking legacy construction, you know, anything prior to 1940, you're up in new England. That's your, that's your, your whole environment in that part of the country. Um, so I think a lot of people don't understand the the huge amount of proactive truck work that's required, um, topside especially when it comes to legacy old brick and joist type three construction because because of the void spaces, right? Um, and I, I think also people don't understand that if it's a void space fire, it is essentially a vent limited fire. So you get some crazy fire behavior in, in a combustible void space that can either have a backdraft or a smoke explosion at any given time, um, depending on what we do or what it does to the building. And uh, I think I think that's the big the big uh, difference in between um, what historically has been urban departments and suburban departments is that one of us has that in our in our you know our buildings and the other one has less of it. And that's where you see the the two the two divergent philosophies of roof work. Um, come about, which is not bad or good. It's just it's just understanding why differences are. So my, my question to you is is um, how do you guys go about educating your 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 newer members on on you know the proactive um, truck work for for topside stuff? You got you have a report of a, a top floor fire. I'm a, I'm just going to assume that you guys probably just proactively send crews up to to start you know assessing and opening up and then uh, you know with the pipe chases and whatnot. Can you kind of talk on that? Yeah. So that again, another luxury that we do have is that we've been very proactively engaging in, in vertical ventilation since well before I got in the department, it's just been, been a tactic that's been in our playbook for, for a long time. Uh, just given the nature of our legacy era constructed buildings and, our predominant building stock being those that are of balloon frame and ordinary construction. So the, the presence of either in the balloon frame construction, you've got the open stud channels in addition to, uh, to the wet walls or in the ordinary construction, it's 
those wet walls and then the the open cock loft above the the ceiling of the top floor which is is going to be areas that are going to be problematic as far as you know fire extension and, and fire spread correct uh, for us also being in new england being an older community uh we have basements so the basement uh basement fires are extremely problematic in the sense that there is no uh there's typically no sheathing over the floor joists for the first floor mm-hmm. uh so a, a fire starting in the basement has direct a- access to those joists as well as to the um the plumbing chases that are extending up from the boilers the hot water heaters and you know just the, the plumbing chases that are extending vertically through all of those floors um, where that's where you could have fire breaking out on any floor. And usually the, the first place it goes is up into the attic or the cock loft space and then starts you know, breaking out kind of sequentially da- down on the floors below. So that's where you know some of the worst fires that I've been at have been fires that have started in the basement and have extended into those void spaces and then spread throughout the building. And then you know when the, if you don't get ahead of those, that's when the fire starts popping up on multiple floors and multiple locations and that's where things start to go sideways on you sure um yeah yeah correct and that's that's where i you know i consider that kind of fire a void space fire unchecked running multiple floors really the the hardest type of 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 firefighting in, in my opinion that's where it takes the most expertise the most strategic foreseeability um and and i think that's also the fire that you see the 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 departments that either lack training or lack experience in old buildings, they they falter um, in a in a grandiose fashion, unfortunately. And uh, that, that but that's why. I mean, they are hard fires, even for the people who who are experienced in fighting them. They're still hard fire. It's a very challenging environment. Um, my my other question would be, so everyone's pretty much in agreement on on flat roofs, cock lofts, opening those up to, you know, avoid some sort of, you know, smoke explosion, hostile fire vent, and obviously for the crews below. Um, What's your opinion on pitched roof ventilation on top, you know, old construction? You know, you you have your rafters and stuff, not trusses. Are you guys more um, likely to pull from below or are you guys more likely to get up on a ridge and bang a hole out? Uh, So if if the fire's within uh, a structural void space, whether that's, in an attic space, whether that attic, you know, uh, under a, a steep pitch roof, or it's or it's walkable, um, or if it's a uh, a knee wall void space fire in a finished half story, uh, our truck companies are 100% going up to the roof and cutting a hole, and that's where I believe the, as far as peaked roof ventilation goes, that's where your biggest return on investment is going to be, especially with those um, the the knee wall void space fires, because if you get a, a good fire in one of those void spaces, especially if that were, that's where it originated or if it extended up from below, uh, you could have a tremendous amount of fire that is, that's behind those three to four foot um, high walls. Right. I mean, there, that's a lot of real estate that's hidden behind uh, those wall spaces that's able to build up a, a high amount of heat, tremendous volume of, of smoke and, and, uh, and pressure, and once that fire breaks out, whether it's through us, you know, starting to to pull the, the those walls, um, that pressure is going to look to equalize and is going to rapidly dump into that that smaller living space that we're trying to operate in and, and dramatically deteriorate conditions. Um, so that's where having that 
that proactive hole up above is going to hopefully relieve a great deal of those conditions by redirecting that that heat, that pressure up and out instead of dumping into the space that the interior crews are operating in. Uh, you know, having a a good hole above a, a knee wall fire is is going to pay di- dividends for that, those crews on the inside. Um, and then again, that's when we think about these these deflagrations, these um, explosive ignitions, whether it's a backdraft or a smoke explosion. You know, when most of us were taught in fire school, the the example most of us were given was the commercial occupancy after hours that's all buttoned up where the fire's been burning for a long time mm-hmm. but we know that given the the vent limited nature of most of the fires that we're operating in today and you know how sealed up some of these buildings are and then when we look at legacy construction with you know the expansive void spaces whether again it's these attic cockloft or knee walls you know you can have these uh, have conditions that are ripe for uh, one of these explosive ignitions and having that hole up above, if that is going to take place, is hopefully going to minimize the effect uh, of that on the crews underneath by giving that a place for uh, that pressure wave to go. Correct. And that that's so, so good that you bring that phenomenon up, hostile fire event, whatever you call it. Um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people are still confused on the, on the two terms and what they really are. I wish there, I mean, there really needs to be, in my opinion, um, more literature out there on, hey, this is the difference between, you know, a backdraft. This is the difference between a smoke explosion. One can happen here. One can happen there. Maybe they can happen both um, in the same fire. Maybe they can happen multiple times in the same fire. But definitely it's all tied to, um, especially smoke explosions, definitely tied to concealed space, void space fires, which, as we all know, type three legacy construction or type five legacy construction. Um Every, they're everywhere. Yeah, that that's the problem essentially in these fires is the voids, and like you brought up, commercial fires. Um, once those get up into either a, a kitchen duct work um, system and then it starts running a flat roof and a cock loft, it just seems like departments are um, getting to a posture of unrecoverability when when the fire reaches that point. Um, and unfortunately, it's it's not due to lack of training. It's it's due to lack of resources. They just don't have the amount of manpower and the saws it would take to open up that amount of roof and stretch that amount of hand lines and put a, a certain amount of water on, on that on that void space when it gets in that commercial cock loft. Um, only a couple departments out there that brings a massive amount of manpower to a to a first alarm or second alarm assignment can can probably handle that situation. And unfortunately, that's where all this goes um, in a in a main street setting which is, that's not the departments we're talking about, right? Like that, these are small town America, Main Street fires that, that those departments will never have the, the resources that me and you have on scene. I mean, their ladder trucks may be coming from 20 miles away. And that ladder truck has historically never been used for roof ops. It's always been used for, you know, um, master stream operation. So like, how do we take these tactics and essentially, you know, teach them to to those small towns that that had these buildings that's the thing is no matter where you go in this country there's a main street and um they have fires on those buildings and what we don't want to see is those buildings burn down um because of of that unfortunately so and and that's kind of where this whole program rolls into itself is uh it doesn't matter if you're urban suburban or small town the building doesn't know where it's at 
You know, the building has no idea if it's in the Bronx or if it's in small town America. Uh, the, but the tactics are still required to win. You know, those don't change. It's all about how fast you get the people on scene and how many people you have on scene. And then obviously there is a little bit of knowledge, skill, and ability that plays into that. Um, so, uh, and, and I know you probably see some of this out in, in your part of the country too, um, even though it is heavily more populated than the Midwest where, where I am at. But, um, is, is, is that, that kind of problem. But uh, the, my, my next question as far as roofs go is uh, something that no one uh, talks about enough, and I've only seen it referenced in one book, which I cannot find, but I know it exists, um, is when a cockloft fire, flat roof, built up, type 3, you know, tar in, in wood planks, that starts to, it burns through initially and starts to reseal over itself. So now what you have is you have you have a, a cockloft fire that has resealed itself, but you also have fire showing through the roof. So you have this weird dynamic of you still have fire through the roof in a very localized portion, maybe a five by five area, one room. The room of origin has burned through the roof, has melted that sheeting and that tar over it itself. So now you actually find yourself in a situation to where you have to open up a roof that has essentially been burned through. And it's really hard to describe that to somebody because you sound like a lunatic when, when you, you i mean it doesn't make any sense right like well it's already opened up you're like well but it's not like the room is ventilated but the rest of the cock loft is its own space and it is sealed up again and 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 the rest of everything else under that is is now needing to be opened up so um i've done that once now and i got some really good photos of that but um i, I wish maybe you can talk on that or maybe you've even had that happen to you um, I don't even know if there's a term for when it's when that happens, but uh, it's just something that's it's very hard to, like I said, describe to someone who's never seen it. You, you, you do you sound kind of silly explaining to someone the need to put a hole in the roof that already has a hole in the roof. <laughs> so I remember you sent that picture to me uh, through text a, a while a little while back, and I remember we, we had you had described this to me, and I was having a hard time conceptualizing it. But then you <laughs> sent me the picture, and it all made sense. So if you really think about it, when the roof decking has kind of failed and, and dropped down into the cockloft space. Right. It's essentially the the roof decking is creating, in essence, return walls. Right. Uh, so the yes. same you know walls that would would sh- would would sheathe either a scuttle or a skylight well um, and seal off that well from the rest of the cockloft. The the burn through spot is essentially dropping the decking down and creating a little well uh, in and of itself. So that's where you're, yes, you're getting that localized ventilation. You may have, you know, fire coming from that one specific spot, but because it it largely dropped down in on itself and is now occluding the opening from the rest of the the cockloft space, it's not venting the rest of the cockloft and now it's still building back up pressure and smoke within uh, and heat within that space mm-hmm. so that's where as long as obviously that the, there's still structural in, integrity to that roof um the, the there still would still be a need for uh for a, a cut or operation to take place in order to reopen that pathway to the rest of the cock loft that is still unvented sure and, and, and that's what we did i mean it looks silly right like our hole is, is literally three feet away from the burned through portion and we have this other nice you know nice you know four by four hole or five by five hole that we cut um 
And like you said, man, that is, I'm glad I asked you the question. That was the one question I, I had to ask you specifically. And you put it in, in an analogy, which I didn't think about, would be like those walls in a, in a scuttle like that, which is the return walls. That's a perfect example, exactly. And, and we all know if anyone who's, who's taken a roof class, those are some walls that you do check to see if there's extension in the cock loft. But um, that's exactly, the, that's exactly the, the, the circumstance that it, it recreates, though. And um, like I said, uh, if, if you're a chief or a safety officer or even a roof crew, like something to, to, to consider because it, you do sound you, you sound insane when, when you're when you're calling for a roof crew and, and someone's on the street watching fire burn through a roof. And you're like, no, I promise you really need to open this up. Um, and, the, and the guys below also will, will say, yeah, you know, you need, we need it's tight here. We need we need roof ventilation. So. Um, just something to kind of t t talk about. I'm really glad you answered that the way you did. So I can now so the, the big, tell other people the big, about it. The big thing to remember is just to keep things simple is ventilation is a, it, is a, uh, a force of nature that that's based on pressures. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's going from high pressure to low pressure. So if we just keep it as in simple terms of that, and we understand how buildings are built and where those uh, those pathways are going to be from compartment to compartment and then to the outside environment we can really understand how that fire is going to travel and then how can you know based off compartmentation is how, how conditions are going to be within that space so the whole idea of ventilation is to relieve conditions okay we're, we're trying to it, it, uh, get that lift in order to to raise that that heat and smoke up off the floor where we're operating and where the potential victims are most likely to be in order to relieve that pressure up, uh, up and out or um, away and out. So that that's really the whole basis of this is we're trying to uh, create these ex uh, exhaust uh, portals, these outlets in order to relieve that pressure, relieve that heat as the lines are coming in or after we've uh, established uh, we've isolated the space that we're venting and sure. that's the whole name of this game uh, whole name of the game is either to to coordinate it with the the onset of suppression mm -hmm. or to ice uh isolate our space and and create local ventilation so we're the, the idea is to make sure that we're 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 not negatively impacting conditions or we're we're creating that ventilation opening within that window of opportunity because there's there's going to be that uh, a very fleeting opportunity where, you know, as that lift occurs, as we relieve that that heat, smoke, and pressure, mm -hmm. and we introduce the fresh air in, there is going to be that window of opportunity where conditions initially get better, um, but with how quickly the, the f highly fuel rich environment that we're operating in is reacting so much faster mm -hmm. that that line has to be pa you know passing through that door. Sure on its approach to the seat of the fire with that charged hand line if we're you know venting for extinguishment if you will or mm -hmm. if we're venting for search we got to make sure that that line is on the approach and you know it has the ability to control the environment or you know we're in an isolated space that's really if if you break down ventilation that's uh, that's really kind of the, the 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 rules of the game if you will and obviously with the the kind of the ultimate caveat of you know, the the one time we have the the opportunity to, to break that is when we're trying to affect a rescue, mm -hmm. but just knowing, being able to understand that 
with that comes the inherent risk of, of bringing the fire in your direction unless you can, uh, you're entering an, an already isolated space or can promptly isolate it. Um, so just going in with that understanding and knowing how to read those conditions and knowing how much time you have if you if you're not able to isolate your position is 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 key to the success of that operation. But as we all know that there's there's going to be times where you know that that operation has to be implemented in order to 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 save a, an imminent life hazard. Sure. So um, the the question for for like I said the the smaller departments that maybe don't have dedicated truck companies or that that truck company is something that arrives later on. Um, they we I say we because that I came up in the in the rural volunteer Midwest fire service. Um, what what a lot of places do is they. They, they essentially adapt. They don't put anyone on the roof. Um, what they do is, is they try to open up like gable vents as far as like a quick and, you know, they try to, I wouldn't say cut a corner, but that's just all they can do at the time given to them with the tools at hand. Um, what, what are your opinions on, on gable vent ventilation as far as the effectiveness goes? The tough part about gable and ventilation is your this, the size of the gable vent is going to be very dead it's going to run the gamut if you will Mm -hmm. but typically they're on the smaller side uh so you're you're just using the natural opening itself is not going to if you have a good fire it's it's not going to be enough to provide you with the the relief that you're looking for yeah and that's even that's even barring that that gable vent is within the area of, of origin um within the area of involvement because you know, if the fire is more located towards the center and you pop that, that gable end vent on one side, now you're going to encourage the fire to spread along that, that uncompartmented attic or uh, attic space or that, you know, that and, and bring it towards that area, that, that previously uninvolved area. Sure. So that's problematic is that, you, you know, you're banking on the fire being within that end of the building where the gable end is. And then even if you, you've got a fire that where you need the, the relief of the ventilation, that natural opening isn't going to be enough to cut it. So now, you know, yeah, could, could you expand the, the opening by cutting it? Sure. But at that point, you know, why not just get up on the roof and, and, and cut from a, a, a more stable platform instead sure. of trying to, you know, um, cut from a, from a, a ground ladder or, you know, if you're going to be setting up the, the aerial, uh, an aerial device anyways, you might as well just go to the roof and, and perform a traditional vertical vent uh, opening. So, so right. And then um, to answer that question, it comes down to it, it's more or less familiarity. Um, these departments, their skill and the abilities uh, that mean they're, they're more akin to working on a ladder against a wall, um, a ladder on a roof, not so much what they're trained to do. Um, and then, of course, there's always the just the, the scare tactics of the whole roof. Uh, we've seen one person fall through the roof out west, and then now all roofs are bad. We don't want to put our guys. So you, you know what I'm saying, and that's that's just the unfortunate reality of a lot of places. Um, and then also for um, the gable the gable wall ventilation, that also gives them um, a form of access for, for what inevitably is usually an outside defensive stream um, also. So while they try to open it up for ventilation at first, they usually transition to some sort of access for a stream. But um, I've seen that tried numerous times, uh, it, it, like you said, with, with varying results. Um, there's one or two of my friends that have taken on approach of, of understanding it, a, I, I would say, on a, on a better level. And, and they do go up and make the, the, the hole larger. And um, I would say the individuals that put the time into kind of, like you said, studying it onto a little deeper um, aspect, get it to work. 
because they, they, they've they ex, they have their mental model of how it's going to happen. Um, but then a lot of places that use as a shortcut, um, like you said, they they get the the juice ain't worth the squeeze, you know, uh, yeah. from, from what from what com, comes of it. Because um, that's always a question that I get for from those apartments that don't have the the assets. Um, and so yeah, I'm glad we're kind of on the same page with that. And that's something that's not a lot. It's not talked about a lot either. So um, it, it's also reminiscent of we've all seen the old. Um, basement ventilation to where like they want you to cut a hole in the in the floor and then and then open the window and then the, the smoke is just going to come out and bend and go out the window right like that's how it yeah. works. Um, and I was going to ask you like what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Is that even a thing anymore? Like that's some stuff that's in still in the books, man. I mean it's 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 opening up. Um, I would say windowless basements, commercial because that's usually the, the ones you have the time to cut on. Um, and uh, we all we kind of just had one in a church. Honestly, we were dropping Breslin distributor nozzles on this basement fire. So, what what do you think ab- about that tactic from from a ventilation standpoint? Uh, that was never a tactic that has been used in the, in my department since I've been there, or in, in recent times. From from what I've been told, um, yeah, I, I do know that it was it was in the books. I don't know if it's in any of the the more modern books, but it's. Uh, yeah, you could make a more of a case for it now that we're seeing the emergence of the battery-powered, uh, you know, tools now that can operate in in smoke-filled environments. But again, when you look at, you know, the juice being worth the squeeze, and you you said it kind of best that smoke, you know, bending out the window. And yes, is it going to seek the, the the path of least resistance? And, and more of it is going to go out the window, but it's. You, you think of what actually goes into performing an operation like that and the feasibility of it. Yeah. It's uh, it happening in the time frame that we're looking for. I just don't seeing that being uh, a reality and being a benefit to where it's actually going to provide you know a, a legitimate relief for that engine company operating down below. Uh, for for us. Thankfully, with a lot of our our multiple dwellings, we do have a lot of exterior uh, access points to the uh, to the basements, especially on our you know three and four story you know uh, the walk ups, the ordinary constructed ones uh, where you usually have this kind of like doghouse, um, mm-hmm. in, almost like a bulkhead in, uh, enclosure yeah. on the back side of the buildings where you've got an exterior door uh, on this little this little bump out. And that goes down a flight of stairs and accesses the the door to the basement. So that way, it gives you direct access into the basement instead of having to you know push down a, a interior flight of stairs, having to pass through that that hot upper layer of, of um, the fire involving the basement. So it, it yeah, that was always uh, you know kind of my tactic is if we can come out, uh, come at the fire on its level and and cut its legs off by just getting water immediately on the seat. Uh, that was kind of the how I like to do business. Uh, because, you know, obviously the, the building construction is going to dictate your ability to do that. And in some buildings, you're just not going to have the luxury of an exterior access point to readily gain access to the basement. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to go through a set of interior stairs. And that's where it, I kind of view basement fires, kind of I lump them into that category of, of a, a more deep-seated fire. Mm-hmm. Because especially if you don't have that direct exterior access, you're operational tempo and your kind of uh, your timeline of when those benchmarks are going to be achieved is going to be a lot slower than than typical because now we have to advance that line above the seat of the fire 
locate the interior stairs, push down the hot upper layer of uh, of the fire, um, which is why basement fires in when we have to pro- approach them in that fashion are some of the most punishing fires that we have to deal with. Um, it, it's kind of there's there's three circumstances where I kind of view ventilation needing a little bit more oversight mm-hmm. where typically for a bread and butter fire all that's needed is the direct communication between the inside and outside crews you know just the either that that engine company officer that that's at, at the end of that hand line uh communicating with the the venting firefighters mm-hmm. uh, is typically all that you need in order to to achieve that level of, of control and coordination um but there's three circumstances when i, when I teach my class that were you want to have some additional oversight and just making an extra call to the incident commander can pay dividends. Uh, one of them being when uh, we have a wind impacted conditions, uh, legitimate hoarding conditions. Mm-hmm. And then the third one being deep seated, because again, our, our, in all three of those instances, uh, premature or misplaced ventilation can wreak havoc and have catastrophic results in those cases. And then uh, also the, common denominator with a lot of those circumstances is again our timeline is is typically slower to when we're able to get water on the fire so that's where we really kind of want to make sure that all our ducks are in a row mm-hmm. to make sure that when when ventilation occurs that we're that engine company's in position to to get good water on the fire uh because the at the very least if, if anything wind is one of those where we need to be the the most conservative in, in the timing and, and placement of our ventilation but with that when you think about approaching a basement fire from up above and that nozzle team having to pass through that hot upper layer mm-hmm. one of the things that was was historically taught and i know that was uh, i've remember it being told to me at times where if I was in the outside vent position, it was, I remember guys talking about, Hey, if we catch a a basement fire, you know, make sure you, when you're doing your 360, just start racking out those basement windows. We got to get that basement to lift if they got to push down from up above. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the, the just basic fire dynamics in the ideal setting, when we, when we vent and we get lift, it makes conditions better at the floor level, but the, equal and opposite reaction is now you've lifted that heat and smoke higher up into that that space and you're exhausting it out in the upper portions right so now if even if you have made it better at the floor everything is now going up to go out (laughs) so now if anything you've made it even hotter um and that the upper portions along the ceiling where that crew has to now push down through so that's where again that timing needs to be more dialed in to where that nozzle team has to be, you know, it, down those stairs and in a position where they can start flowing good water on the fire, uh, you know, good water on the fire before we start opening up, because then it, it, we're actually going to start, you know, uh, working against ourselves, which sure. is again, yeah, the- and, and that's a good point. I don't think a lot of people understand the the height of the ventilation opening, how huge that is. Um, I don't think people understand that. Like you said, um, yeah, waiting for that crew to get below that height of that basement window. Um, it is huge. Like you say, you don't you don't want to you don't want to light that off, and then now you got to go through that layer. That's ridiculous, right? Plus, now you're talking about hose burn through, um, all that kind of stuff, right? And uh, yeah, to get underneath that and then open it up is is um is is huge to, to at least know that and to have the discipline for that. Um, so uh, yeah, Lex caught a run, so she's no longer here. But before she left, she uh, asked um to ask 
asked me to ask you a question, which was basically, what what, what do you, um, what would you uh, consider departments to do that that are for, uh, on a smaller scale um, that 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 they say they don't have the manpower to do coordinated ventilation? Like, well, what 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 do we? What are smaller departments that only, you know, the, the volunteer template, and I mean like unstaffed volunteer template where we got people responding from, you know, home to a, to the firehouse, get in a truck and then go to the scene or maybe respond on scene in their own personal vehicle and then, and then wait for a driver to get the truck. What do, we, what do we do for those departments? How do those departments utilize what we know about ventilation now on an old building, whether it's an old type five farmhouse or something on Main Street? Like what, where, the, where do those departments fit in with the, with the stuff that we know now? So first off, especially for the folks in the Midwest or in areas that don't have truck uh, dedicated truck companies, we got to get past the mindset of of that ventilation being a a truck company function. Mm -hmm. If you don't operate with trucks, then just take that out of the equation and just look at it as ventilation being a support function that if we have the resources that needs to get done. So it doesn't matter what type of rig you show up on or if you show up in your private vehicle. Uh, once we have the resources dedicated to get the two primary operations of, of fire attack and primary search underway, with whatever surplus resources we have left over, that support function of ventilation to facilitate those two primary objectives uh, needs to be put into place. And this is just looking at the, the fire conditions, the building construction, and figuring out which tactic is is practical mm-hmm. and which one that I could actually accomplish with the capabilities I have in place and that and which one's gonna give me the, the best return on my investment. Sure. So where this, to break this down in really simple terms is look at it from, okay, is, is this fire involving, is this just a room and contents fire or is this a, uh, a structural void space fire? Mm-hmm. Because if it's just a room and contents fire, this makes it really easy for the folks that, that are really strapped for resources. Because if it's with a room and contents fire within a living space, there's probably going to be at least one window available within that space in order to effectively get some relief of that space in a very timely manner. So you think about horizontal ventilation, one firefighter with a hand tool and, you know, at at most a a ground or portable ladder, if it's on an an upper floor, can get that operation done and at least get that initial 10 square feet of of horizontal ventilation. And in a lot of rooms, there's there's two windows at at least. Mm -hmm. So that's that's 20 square feet of horizontal ventilation that one person can very quickly get get in place in a timely fashion. So while yes, vertical ventilation on its own, you know, just going off of, you know, simple physics, being above the fire using the, you know, the the buoyancy of the the hot gases is going to create that ideal full exhaust, that unidirectional flow that we're looking for to maximize that air exchange. But if we, if horizontal ventilation is a, um, is feasible, again, if we're talking living space fires here, or we have a suitable horizontal opening, if we can time that horizontal ventilation with a flowing and moving hand line, you could actually create that same unidirectional flow just horizontally. Because mm-hmm. if you think about a, a flowing and moving hand line, as long as that line is open, in addition to sending 160 to 185 gallons per minute downrange, 
you're also bringing in thousands uh, of cubic feet per minute of air. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and to make the, and I, I always use simple analogies to make bring my points home. So through the UL studies, they, they, they told us that at, at 150 gallons a minute, which is our baseline interior flow, you're pu- pulling in 5,000 cubic feet per minute of air, which may not mean it, anything to to anybody so to put that in terms go to lowe's or home depot buy the biggest residential ceiling fan you can buy which is like one of those big 52 uh 52 inch wide fans install that thing in your house and put it on the highest setting that's how much air you're actually moving ahead of your handline stream in addition to sending all that water down range so as it's flowing we're not only you know, cooling all the fuels down, we're contracting the gases, but that pressure front that we're we're sending in front of us through all that air entrainment, if you're coming down a hallway or you're, you know, you're working that stream and sealing off the threshold to that fire area or that fire room, you're actually able to create a seal with that pressure point. As long as that line's flowing and moving, that, that bi-directional, that intake and exhaust that was typically coming out of that front door mm-hmm. now you can actually pull a full intake out of the front door and if it's vented opposite Correct. through horizontal window ventilation you're now giving it a place to go and that can uh, can transition to, to full exhaust sure. so sure. that's where in that horizontal timely horizontal ventilation in conjunction with a flowing and moving handline stream can maximize our exhaust capabilities um through that horizontal ventilation yeah yeah so I mean, that's what's that's basically classical fire attack right you know i mean yes yeah i mean that's this is nothing yeah, new yeah, yeah. That's, that's in every book written prior to 1950 you know i mean that's and then you start getting into your your fog attacks with with you know essentially they're doing the same thing they're make, make, making a massive pre- pressure differential with a 30 degree fog and pushing all the bad out um and so uh, the thing to remember is is this question inevitably comes up too and they're like well but you're talking about all this air entrainment. Are you going to overpressurize? What if you don't have that backside ventilation? What if you're so strapped and it's just that nozzle team pushing in? Mm-hmm. Well, it, that if you're in a, con, a confined area, like it, you know, that we're, the only time I've seen this happen was uh, when the, the nozzle firefighter went into uh, a closet that directly accessed a knee wall void space in a cape, mm. um, and aggressively operating the nozzle actually overpressurized the knee wall void and you know kind of it blew blew out of the knee walls but that's we're talking about a confined space but in terms of uh actual living space the the if you're flowing the right amount of water and getting that water where it needs to go your rate of contraction is going to be far greater than any amount of um, expansion that you're going to get from from the uh, the steam conversion. Gotcha. So that's that's where that overwhelming superior force comes from by us, you know, sending that 160 to 185 down a range, cooling and coating. We're get it. This goes back to again Newton's third law again. We're, we're equal and opposite reaction. So things not only expand as they're heated, but they proportionately contract as they're cooled. So if we're doing a good job of, of surface and ga- uh, gas cooling by you know, move, working that stream around, we're at, by contracting those gases, you're actually relieving that pressure um, at a far greater rate than and you're gonna get from any um, increased pressure from steam conversion. So again, that's where that overwhelming superior force, that good nozzle work comes from. And if when it's coupled with with 
backside timely backside ventilation that's when we can really leverage that tactic to its full potential which as you said that goes right back to classical firefighting you crack open you know a manual freed's fireground tactics book and yeah. you know this it's all it's all right there and sure. is unfortunately the double-edged sword of of the innovations in uh turnout gear and respiratory uh, scba mm-hmm. has taken us further away from that level playing field that our pre-SCBA predecessors uh, had operated on with the victims. So because they they didn't have the respiratory protection and had limited thermal protection, they better understood what the victims were going through mm-hmm. and out of necessity had to open up more aggressively, had to you know flow water you know sooner and for longer because they needed that relief. And just because our equipment today has allowed us to penetrate deeper and faster without flowing water, doesn't mean that's what we should be doing, nor is that's what's best for the victims. So our our tactics need to be implemented always with what's best for the the, the victims and their survivability. Uh, period. And that's that's really the 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 end of story there. So we can't allow technology to um, allow us to deviate from those tried and true. Uh, best practices that uh, our predecessors had had put through their paces during the war years and prior, mm-hmm. um, and that they learned, you know, through that they learned intuitively through experience. They may not have had the terminology or the data to back up what they were doing or why they were doing it, um, but they were doing it because they had to. And the the fact of the the one thing that hasn't changed is that the victims are still unprotected and that they still need us to make conditions better on the inside. Sure. That's one thing that has ne- not changed and never will change. Um, and unless the prolif- uh, there's the proliferation of, of residential sprinklers, but, yeah. um, and even then the, you still need a, a firefighters occupying the interior to, to remove those occupants from those, the, those IDLH environments. Awesome. Well, man, we've we've had a hell of a show here today. Um, super awesome to have you on. Uh, we've known each other for a while now. Um, uh, before before we uh, get out of here, uh, let everyone know how to how to get your book. Um, what what the book is. Um, obviously, you sent me a copy. It's fantastic. So the uh, the book is called Coordinating Ventilation, Supporting Extinguishment, Survivability, and it basically just goes through the mechanics of ventilation, uh, how, how it works uh, on a functional level and how it interacts with uh, the other fire ground operations, mainly fire attack and, and search, and then how it influences victim survivability. So it, it's, not a, it's not a how-to book. It is not a, you should fight fires this way. It's here's how the tactic works. Here's how it impacts the, the fire ground at large. That way you can develop a practical understanding of the tactic and then implement and implement it in a manner that best suits your working environment. So for your your uh, building stock, for your resources, it's to en- enhance your decision making ability on the fire ground. It's to provide you with the the insights to be able to utilize the tactic in a manner that best suits you, because that's at the end of the day, firefighting is is local and it's going to be based upon all of those those variable factors um, but the principles of fire dynamics uh, are, are universal so it's making sure that we we understand uh, that foundation those foundational concepts in order to um, make better make better decisions on a more consistent basis so that was published through uh, fire engineering mm-hmm. and can be purchased through fire engineering books and videos or on Amazon 
Uh, you can also, you know, reach out to me via uh, my website. I have a training company called Fireside Training. Uh, the website for that is firesidetraining.org. So just remember it's .org. Uh, when you access it, I've got a ton of free content out there. The, the link to, to purchase the book is there. Uh, I put all of my my speaking engagement schedule is on there. And just there's a, uh, the training minute series I did through with fire engineer, uh, fire engineering is on there as well as a multitude of, of resources that you can freely use to uh, just enhance your knowledge and build out your own internal programs. Cause that's the whole name of the game is to make this information readily accessible. Awesome, man. Well, uh, th- thanks for having, having your time here with us. Um, hopefully everyone gets out to FDIC and gets to see you again next year. Uh, I've taken your class numerous times um, across the country and at FDIC. Always a good time. Always take something away from it. Um, it's definitely not the same canned class over and over again. Always something new. So uh, once again, Nick, thank you for your time. Um, and uh, if you have any other things to add, you know, have at it. Um, but if not, I think we're uh, we're done here. You uh, you wrapped it up, and uh, maybe we had a heck of a heck of a day with this uh, podcast. Yeah, it's always a pleasure catching up, Chris. All right, man. Well, you stay safe, Nick. Yeah, you too. All right. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Main Street Firefighting, a podcast by Fire Engineering. We hope it was worth your time. If you'd like to learn more from Nick, like he said, you can find him online, and of course, we highly recommend his book published by Fire Engineering. Finally, if there's a topic you'd like to learn more on, or a Main Street Fire you'd like to discuss, please reach out. Until then, stay safe and have a good night.